I have titled the morning's message, Prayer. I set a record in cross-references. So you're sitting in on history this morning, just so you know. But don't be too worried because we're just touching on some of them and some of them I'm not gonna have you turn to, but quote. But I am gonna encourage you, if you're at Calvary Chapel, make sure you're bringing your Bible. If you don't, there's one in front of you. And when I say, would you please turn to, then please turn to <laughs> that particular page and, and uh, look at it for yourself. Uh, we left off in verse 14 before the prophecy conference, which was excellent. And uh, I'll speak it up in verses 15. The background to the book of Ephesians, um, it was rich beyond measure. Yet living in actually a beggar's spirituality. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul tells them of their heavenly bank account. And I want you to compare that with the United States of America today with Ephesus. In other words, they were so secure in their wealth. Paul is trying to get their attention to say that's not where the real riches are. We were in Matthew Men's uh, prayer yesterday talking about where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be also. In Ephesus, Ephesus it was uh, their bank account. And now, in this chapter here, he's trying to tell them what's really important. And I singled out one in particular topic, and that is the importance of prayer. So I've entitled it Prayer This Morning, and... Um, Let's just read up to verse, uh, this morning we'll look at the subject of um, prayer and the different kinds of prayers and the Lord showing us how to and how not to pray. There are prayers of praise, mourning, deliverance, healing, prophecy, and others we'll look at this morning. Um, Reading through verse 17, let's pick it up in verse 15, we have a therefore. I also heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So this is the first thing that Paul is talking about. I'm praying for you guys. He's trying to get their attention on the, the spiritual importance of the church that is in Ephesus. Uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So let's start with a New Testament teaching of an Old Testament picture I'm not going to have you turn to John 3, verse 14, but John is, um, Jesus is, is witnessing to John. He's a Pharisee, and the Lord is telling him he has to be born again, and he's just not getting it. And he finally gets to the place in explaining to Nicodemus what it means to be born again. Nicodemus, it's like, the wind blowing through a tree. You can see the leaves go back and forth, 
but you can't see the wind. He says, so it is everyone who's born of the Spirit. You will notice the effect that it has on you spiritually, but you don't see it. Just the effect of it. And then he changes the subject completely and says in verse 14 of chapter 3, as uh, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he's talking to Nicodemus about what's going to happen to him. So that's the teaching. Let's look at the picture by turning to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, chapter 21. Numbers 21, looking at verses 4 through 9, um, we have the children of Israel on their way, on their journey. Verse 4 says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there's no food, there's no water. And our soul, Dwight's version, is sick and tired of this worthless bread. All we eat is manna. We're sick of manna. And so because of their complaining, instead of being grateful for what they have, so the Lord sent fiery servants among the people and bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Uh, it's not my notes, but it's important to bring up uh, because it ties in to why the church in America is in the state that it is right now. They complained about the manna. Oh, I remember when we were in Egypt, man, we had those melons and onions and leeks and, and T-bone steaks and all these other things. And... Um, We're sick of the bread. The thing about the bread is they had to go out and get it every single day. They got it. It was fresh daily. And if you said, I want to sleep in the next day and I'll just take a double portion today so I can sleep in tomorrow, then it would rot and grow worms. So they had to go out and eat it daily. And it was God's provision for them. When we have the baptism today, I'm going to explain the difference between the two baptisms. One going through the Red Sea, where the sea parted, of physical baptism. And then Joshua leading them through the Jordan River, where the waters parted again, going into God's promises. The promise, in this case, would be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We pray for both. But here's my point. If you didn't eat your manna, you went hungry. That's all God was providing. Manna is a picture of what you're holding in your hands this morning. And the church has gotten away from that and they're thinking, oh man, can't we spice things up a little bit? I mean, get some smoke machines up here and some disco lights and um, you know, do a little jumping around and get some more programs. We definitely need more programs. No, you need the word of God. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God's word. It's your manna. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And they said, well, our ancestors ate manna and they were bragging on that. And he says, no, I'm the bread of life. You need to eat of me. Okay, a little sidetrack there. Old Testament picture 
and four through nine, the people complained. So what the Lord did in verse six, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and he bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Um, The fiery serpent is a picture of sin and uh, Satan himself. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed. This is a prayer of intercession. He's interceding for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. The bronze here is always representative of um, um, uh, uh, sin. And he set it on the pole. And it shall be that anyone who is bitten when he looks at it will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. And what we have, uh, bronze is a symbol of the judgment and um, the serpent uh, a symbol of sin is basically a picture of sin being judge, Old Testament picture. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. My question is, what happened to the people who said, that's crazy. How I'm dying here. I just got bit by a snake. And how is that going to help me be healed from where I'm at? And they leaned upon their own understanding instead of t- doing what the word of God told them to do. Those that looked, lived. Those that did not, they died. And it's really that simple. So our first picture here of prayer is um, Moses praying for the people. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. I want to look at verse 1, and I'm going to fill in some some of the blanks here. 1 Kings 17 is Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, he said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, I'm not gonna, yes, I am gonna have you turn to, uh, do I wanna go there yet? Let's wait a second. Yeah, let's go, keep your hand right here and go to James chapter five. Well, Dwight, we're talking about Elijah here. And if he says it's not going to rain for three and a half years, well, he's one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. And I'm just uh, an average Joe. Well, average Joe, um, this is what James has to say to you and I. Verse 13 of chapter 5 of James. If any man among you is suffering, let them pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. If any man among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Confess your transgressions to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now verse 17 is very important. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. 
Translation, no difference. He had a calling. God called him. One of the guys in men's prayer yesterday was commenting on Curtis Bauer's message from last Sunday. And by saying, um, have, have you ever really gone before the Lord? Say, Lord, what, what do you want from my life? And it was kind of convicting this person because the person felt that uh, he'd never really done that. And so what I said, I said, well, let's, let's put what the scripture says about, you're talking about right now in full context. The Bible says this about your calling. It says, when you accepted the Lord, whatever state you're in, and I'm not talking about Illinois or Indiana or wherever you are, wherever you're working, when you're called, remain there. And he says, then, if God has something else other than that for you, he will call you out from there. So I say that because I don't want anybody to misunderstand Curtis because Curtis would agree with me uh, on what I'm saying. He did blow my mind in the prayer room. Uh, Totally off subject. His kids, he's got nine of them, have never seen TV. Never seen TV. And we thought, what? (laughs) They've never seen a TV show. Um, One of them asked, did did they get to see Agenda? And I think, I I suppose you let them see that one. But... um, um, again, having so much, this was a problem with the church in Ephesus, and it's a problem that we have today. So my point here is Elijah's just an average man, no different than you and I. He was just called to be a prophet, that's all. So let's read on. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that would not rain and did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and earth produced fruit. This is exactly what happens in Revelation chapter 11, where it tells us that some of the miracles that they did, that there was no rain in the days of their ministry. The days of their ministry was 1,260 days, 42 months, exactly three and a half years. So this has happened before. Now you can go back to 1 Kings 18. Um, and we're going to look at verses 20 through 35. And there was a big showdown between the prophets of Baal um, and Elijah. And verse 20 says, So Ahab sent for the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. Um, This is one of our favorite places to go because the view from here, you can see all the Jezreel Valley where the battle of Armageddon will someday take place. And Elijah came to the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left of the prophets of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So he gives them this condition. He says, let's build an altar and uh, put stones around it and uh, put wood on it. 
And uh, we'll both call out to our gods. You call out to Baal, and I'll call out to the Lord. And um, so the prophets of Baal really got Pentecostal here. And uh, they started early in the morning. Um, and even till noon, oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered, and they leaped about on the altar which they made. Well, they were praying. And they were getting really intense about it. Uh, they were even uh, got to the point where they were cutting themselves with knives and, and uh, blood gushed out on them. And so when it was midday was past, they, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. I mean, they're going at it all day long. And nothing's happening. And then um, <laughs> Elijah has a sense of humor. He says, maybe you guys aren't crying loud enough in verse 27. Uh, maybe he's on vacation or meditating, or maybe he's busy. Uh, you can use your own translation for what you think that might be, <laughs> taking care of matters. Or perhaps he's sleeping and you need to, to wake him up. And he says, okay, enough with you guys, my turn. He says, but before I pray, I want you to go get some water, and I want you to douse the sacrifice. Then I want you to do it again. Put more water on it. And then I want you to do it again so that it's completely saturated. Their prayers lasted all day long because there is no God named Baal. Okay? He, was, he was one of the 300 of the um, gods. I'm not even going to go there. Let's pick it up in verse 36. So the 35 says, so the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trenches with water. And it came to pass at the time of the uh, offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, now look how long it is and what he has to say. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God of Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all the things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, that these people may know that you are the Lord and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. That's the length of the prayer. What happens? Fire falls and consumes the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust. It licked up the water that was in the trench, and when the people saw it, they fell on their face and says, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And then actually, when we go there, I like to say that it's an A site. And the reason I say that it's an A site is because when you go on the lookup um, podium, you climb some stairs, and if you look east or west, you can see the Mediterranean. And if you look east, you can actually see Nazareth straight across this great big valley that's there. And it's uh, just a beautiful sight. But as you're looking down, there's this brook. That's um, verse 40. And he says, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishron. Well, while you're standing there, you can actually look down, and the brook is still there. So that's why I believe it's an A-site. And he executed them there. And um, 
let's go to, well, the context here is Moses bringing the covenant down from, from the mountain. And um, um, they were making a golden calf at the bottom of it, verses 1 through 8. And, um, and um, Moses breaks, when he sees what they've done, he, he breaks the, uh, uh, the golden calf. And then the Lord said he'd had it with the people. So here we have another prayer of intercession, picking it up in verse 11. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, why does your wrath hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hands? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, in Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all the land I have spoken, I will give it to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And so the Lord relented from the harm which he was about to do to the people. What was Moses doing? He was praying for them. What if he went and prayed? Prayer of uh, intercession as an example of, um, of interceding for somebody in prayer. Let's make it personal. Who's on your heart that's not saved right now? Gee, we got all this crazy stuff going on. Well, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about what's going on right now. And be looking for those open doors and be interceding for people. My prayer request for my old friends is a simple one. Lord, whatever it takes. I don't care. Your your word says it's the goodness of the Lord that leads a person to repentance. That's plan A. That's what the Lord would like. But more often than not, it's plan B. And they have to hit bottom before they'll look up. So I don't care. I said, I don't care what what you have to do to them. I want to see them in heaven, not hell. And um, so that's pretty much a prayer of whatever it takes. All right, let's look at a prayer of repentance and revelation um, and being consistent in our prayer life. To do that, you need to turn to the book of Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 is Daniel here is being promoted because he could read the handwriting on the wall when nobody else in Babylon could. The writing on the wall was meeny, meeny, tackle, euphorsin. And then Daniel tells the king, that the interpretation of each word, meaning God has numbered your kingdom and finished it, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting, Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, they clothed Daniel with purple, put a chain around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. You say, Dwight, why not the second? Because this is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. The next one up would have been um, Nebuchadnezzar himself. 
and let me see, I want to make sure I got that one right. Yeah, Belshazzar uh, is the one who, who had the, uh, the party that caused the, the handwriting on the wall. So what was the result of Daniel being able to do this? Well, he's promoted. Um, the first uh, couple verses of chapter 6, they were losing their positions of authority, all because of Daniel. Daniel's getting elevated and they're not. And so Darius set over the kingdom 100, oh, I gotta go back and read, that very night Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain and Darius and the Medes received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Now, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps or governors. Over these, three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give an account to him so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was given to him and the king gave him thoughts to be over the whole thing. Number two man. And these 120 um, people who also had authority saying, we got, we got to get rid of this guy. He's getting way too much power in him. We can't any, find any fault with him. And the only way we're going to find fault with Daniel is in his faith. Because he was faithful, nor was any error, verse 4, found in him. So they thought, we've got to snap him. We've got to trap him. How are we going to do it? Well, we'll figure out something here. But it's got to have to do with his religion. So they go to the king and they said, we've got a great idea. Let's make a decree. You're the king here. And we don't want anybody praying to any other gods except praying to you. And let this decree um, uh, last for 30 days, except you, O king, shall, uh, if they don't, if they do it, they'll be cast into the lion's den. So this is the great story of Daniel being cast into the lion's den. Well, what did Daniel do? Um, they're telling him he can't pray. So what does he do? When Daniel, verse 10, knew that the writing was signed, he went home. Now, with the Medes and the Persians, different from Nebuchadnezzar, if Nebuchadnezzar said it was Monday and it was really Tuesday, it was Monday, okay? He could change and do whatever he wanted to. Not so with the Medes and the Persians. If he signed something, he couldn't unsign it. You signed it, and now it's set. So when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, so now it can't be changed, what did he do? He went home in his upper room with his windows open towards Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees three times that day. So we know that Daniel prayed three times daily and gave thanks before his God, which was his custom since early days. So ever since he was small, he's praying three times a day. And um, they caught him, and they go tell the king. He says, you know this guy that you set up to be over everything? And um, 
we, we signed a decree that nobody can pray to anybody but you. Well, there's this Jew over here named Daniel. He's not doing it. He openly is praying to his God. And um, we find here that Darius was displeased because he realized he's been tricked. So when they told it to him, um, it says that he was displeased, but only because he was tricked into signing this decree. His heart was towards Daniel, and he tried to figure out every way possible to get him out of of the lion's den, but um, he was unsuccessful. So he gets up early in the morning, verse 19, runs to the lion den and says, Daniel, are you still alive? And um, Daniel said to the king, oh king, live forever. (laughs) The lions weren't hungry at all last night. They slept like, cuddled up right next to him, had a good night's sleep. And um, uh, so they let him out and then the king said, now I'm gonna give another command. The guys who put this decree together, throw them in. And it says that their bodies were torn apart even before they hit the bottom of the cave and they were killed. So all that is a result of being faithful in prayer. Now I'll go to um, um, this idea about praying three times a day. You don't have to turn there. First Thessalonians 5.17 says, we are to pray without ceasing. In other words, we're always supposed to be in a state of mind of praying. Now Daniel chapter nine is a prayer, a different kind of prayer, a prayer of repentance. Well, why are they in Babylon in the first place? Well, they're there for 70 years because they weren't keeping God's law concerning the Sabbath of the land. And Daniel has been there the full 70 years. He is probably 17 when he left. Add 70 years to that. And it tells us that I, Daniel, understood by the numbers of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Time's up. Time to go home. How's it going to happen? Well, their mistake is they got used to living in Babylon. And they did not repent. Actually became more worldly. Of all the Jews that were sent there, only 50,000 of them returned. So beginning in verse three, I'm not gonna read this, through 19, I'll read verse three and four so you get a feel for it. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make my request by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. O Lord, great and merciful and awesome, with those who love him and those who keep his commandments. We have sinned. So the first 19 verses, I like to call it an escalating prayer. It intensifies. When you read verse 19, it sort of reaches a crescendo. And he says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen. O Lord, act. Do not delay for your people's sake. My God, for your city, for your people are called by your name, interrupted. (laughs) His prayer gets interrupted um, by Gabriel. Gabriel just shows up. One of the um, prayers that we pray 
are prayers of repentance. When you get saved, part of the process of salvation is repenting and turning. Good place for an amen. What's Daniel doing here? He's turning and repenting. And he's, he's doing it on behalf of a whole nation. And then I add on to this, along with prayer and repentance, comes revelation. Interrupts the prayer, and he tells Daniel in verse 23 that you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand. Doesn't say anything about them going back at the time, even though they did. But verse 24 is one of the most important prophecies in the Bible because it tells us what God is going to do with Israel. And this is important, the first verse here, 77s or 70 weeks or 70 times seven or literally 490 years is being. He's telling Daniel, because of the prayer, it leads to revelation. I'm gonna work with Israel for your people. Who are your people? Oh yeah, the Jewish people. And your holy city. This is one of the strongest verses in the Bible for the pre-trib rapture because it is designated clearly to Jerusalem and the Jewish people. The church is not mentioned here. And he's gonna do six things in his 490 year period of time. Uh, He's gonna finish the transgression. He's gonna make an end of sin. He's gonna make reconciliation for iniquity. He's gonna bring in everlasting righteousness. Has that one happened yet? Nope. Um, To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. That's what he's going to do. 483 of those years have been fulfilled. And they were fulfilled on April 6, 32 AD, on what we call Palm Sunday, when they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And uh, that was the one time that Jesus openly allowed people to worship him. Why? Because Psalm 118 says, this is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. What day? A specific day. This is the day that the Lord has made. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. So they're all quoting Psalm 118, and the Pharisees get all bent out of shape, and they're mad Say, rebuke your followers. They actually think you're the Messiah. He says, can't do it. Why not? Well, you see, if they don't praise me right now, then the rocks are going to start doing it. And like I always say, don't you wish they would have just shut up for a minute? (laughs) I would love to hear rocks sing. And um, so that's been fulfilled. And then he says this to them. You're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all of a sudden, we have Gentiles getting saved. Cornelius was the first one. And we went from the clock stopping, if you want to put it that way, after 173,880 days from the going forth of the command. That brings us to April 632, the only time Jesus allowed himself to be publicly worshipped and said, actually, it's mandated. It has to happen because the scriptures say it. So he owes Israel seven years. Hmm. 
Isn't it interesting that the tribulation period is exactly a seven-year period of time? It's one of the strongest cases, my friends, for those who hold any other view than the pre-trib rapture. It has nothing to do with the church. This is all Israel. It's about, like it says here, your people, Jews, and the holy city, which is Jerusalem. And then the clock is gonna start. When? Sometime after the rapture. How long after the rapture? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe immediately, maybe a week, maybe a month. All I know that after we cannot be here. And um, then the Lord says there's gonna be a period of time that has never been, nor will ever be. Let's go to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse one, begins by saying, then he spoke a parable to them that men ought to pray and do not lose heart. So when your heart is heavy, the Lord says, cast your cares upon me because I care for you and I'll give you peace, a peace that passes human understanding. But you have to pray to do it. It just doesn't happen. Uh, A good picture of God never twisting your arm, he gives us instructions. He said instead of fainting, we ought to be praying. Instead of getting all bent out of shape, we should be casting our cares upon him. And then he tells this parable to go along with it. He says it was a certain city and a judge he didn't fear God, had no regard for man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while. But after he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard men, yet because this widow troubles me, I'm going to do it. In other words, she was showing up every day, <laughs> and he wanted to get rid of her. Uh, lest by her continually coming she weary me. And then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God not avenge his own elect who cry day and night to him though he bears long with them? That's called prayer, my friends. Talking to God, crying out to God day and night. And he says, if this guy that didn't fear God at all does it, how much more your heavenly father? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, the Son of Man comes. Will he really find faith on the earth? I find that a very interesting scripture. As I look at the state of the Ephesian church, who was dependent upon its money, and the United States of America, and the church, and what a small minority placed a complete and total emphasis on the teaching of the manna and the eating of this book. Not that we shouldn't have outreaches, uh, not that we shouldn't support Haiti, we do. And um, we have women's retreats and things like that. Yes, we have those. But it's not the emphasis in any way, shape, or form. So we have here, um, he goes on to say, and he spoke to them who trusted in themselves and their righteousness and despise others. This is under the title of how not to pray. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
And the Pharisee stood and prayed and said within himself, Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off, um, he's a good example of prayer, would not so much as raise his eyes to the heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a rotten sinner. Dwight's paraphrase. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be abased and he who humbles himself will be exalted. How do we pray to the Lord? Humbly. How do we come before him? Realizing that, um, like the Apostle Paul says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. <laughs> this is Paul talking. The chiefest of sinners? What, what category does that put us in? So, um, let's turn to, uh, that was Luke. Let's turn to Matthew chapter six. Now I find this interesting. I don't believe in coincidences because at men's prayer tomorrow, this is where we started. Matthew chapter six. I got to men's prayer and I said, guys, where are we at this morning? And he said, we're in Matthew chapter six. And I said, that's interesting because we're gonna be in Matthew chapter six tomorrow. And here... In Matthew chapter 6, verses um, 5 through 7 is what I have in my notes here. It says, more instructions on how to pray. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to be, um, they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So he's talking about prayer. One of the questions is, then why are we meeting as a group? Because it says wherever two or three are gathered together, and call on my name, and so on and so forth. So you gotta take all what the scripture says about prayer. And then what he comes up with, we call the Lord's Prayer. And he says, in this manner, this is how you ought to pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It is not the Lord's Prayer. This is a disciple's prayer. He's teaching the disciples how to pray. And he says, our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts and forgive us our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So that was uh, in men's prayer yesterday. Um, we're not to pray uh, vain, repetitious prayers 
15. Um, what, what is a vain, repetitious prayer? Well, here's one. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let this food to us be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Or what would be another one? How about praying the rosary over and over again? How about saying 10 Hail Marys and 14 I Fathers? Or praying to pick your saint and pray to him? No, these are, when, when you pray, um, we have direct access and we're not to pl- pray a vain repetitious prayer. We're so familiar with this prayer, there's a danger of it. We lose the heart and the meaning of it because we can recite it so easily. But this is the outline that the Lord gave us. Let's go to um, the right way, uh, chapter 7 of Matthew, and verses 7 through 11. And it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Um, seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and him who seeks finds and who him to knocks it will be opened or what man is there among you if a son asks for bread will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish will he give him a serpent if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more your father um, give good things to those who ask him. We have not because we ask not. A lot of times, prayer is the last thing on the list. We, we, we exasperate everything, and then he said, well, nothing's working. Maybe I should pray. <laughs> and uh, a lot of times, it's the last thing we do. All right, um, prayer of deliverance. Let's go to Mark 14 for that one. Mark 14, verse 32. That's Matthew Dwight, not Mark. Mark chapter 14, looking at verses 32 to 42. This is the Lord praying for deliverance. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the most important prayers in the Bible. Then it came to the place which was called Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death, stay here and watch. Now, this preacher cannot in any way, shape, or form articulate what Jesus just said because we're talking of the sins of the entire world and he knows what they are and he knows that they're gonna be placed on him. And he says, this is so sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch a while. And he went a little farther and he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible that this hour might pass from him. Um, He says, Abba Father, All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. What does the Bible say in John? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They were one. They've never, ever been separated. 
throughout all eternity. They have always been. Jesus is aware that the Father is going to turn his face on him here and be separated from him. And I think it was more than I can put in words what that means. So much so, the Lord is saying, if there's any other way, then I want that. But there was no other way. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Then he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Now we know we ought to pray. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? And how often don't we do it? <laughs> Lots of times. I should be praying this thing through. Take time until I hear what the Lord has to say. And Lord, let's make it so we don't argue about this. Let it be your will done. I just need to know what your will is. And what your will is is what we will do. And so we find here the prayer in Gethsemane. And now I want to take you to the Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17. We're getting close to winding this thing up, so hang in there. But I want to read Jesus' prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. And I'm just going to read it and let it speak for itself. Jesus spoke these words. He lifted his eyes to heaven and said, you know what I find interesting about that? If I said, okay, everybody, let's pray, what would you do? We'd go like this, won't we? When Jesus prayed, what did he do? He lifted his head up. That blew me away the first time I read that. <laughs> Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know that they, they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Oh, oh we want to say that. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I looked up and lost my place. I'll find it quickly. Um, I'll just pick it up in verse uh, seven. Now they have known you that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them thy words which you have given me and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I know to you, Holy Father, kept through your name those whom you have given me, that they uh, may be one as we are one. And while I was with them in the world and kept them uh, your name, those whom you gave me I have kept and not lost one of them. 
except of course the set of perdition as Judas Iscariot that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I come to you with these things and I speak to the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. One of the guys we're praying for literally has his whole family hating him because he's a Christian. And um, he goes through this day after day after day after day. And believe me, when he comes to men's prayer, he's home with family. And because uh, he doesn't have any other family because the rest of his family all hate him. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. He was praying here for his disciples. The next five or six verses are all about you and me. I do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word. They went out, started telling people about Jesus. People were getting saved. And as a result, here we are 2,000 years later, reading um, the Lord telling the disciples to pray for you and I, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us and the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire they also whom you've given me may be with me that where I am uh, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and I have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it in that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Close by having you turn to Luke 21, verse 36, which will be the last verse I'll be sharing. I know what some of you are thinking. I've seen all those cross-references up there. We're not going to be having... A baptism today. It's going to go all day long with this. As you look at Luke 21, draw your attention to one verse where it says, Watch therefore and what? And pray. Pray what? That you may be counted worthy to escape all these things which will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Watch. And what? Pray. Be accounted worthy, how do you become worthy? By simply putting all your hope and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and um, just being that 
state of mind where, Lord, we're just, we're going to occupy till you come. And um, when, you're, when you come, we're home. Did I say that was the last verse? You know better, don't you? <laughs> Psalm 150. It's only six verses long. One more prayer. It's the prayer of praise. So we've covered this morning how to pray, how not to pray. Prayers of repentance that lead to revelation. Um, Examples of the scribes and the Pharisees on how not to pray. Doing it openly to be seen by men or humbly. But in Psalm 150, the very last of the Psalms is um, a joyful psalm and a form of praise. Of course, all the 150 psalms are set to music. And this one is a prayer praise song. And I will close with this one, where it says, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the timbrel and the dance and praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with loud sounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. And all God's people said the last part. Praise the Lord. And we got a special song that we dug out. We haven't sang it for a long time and I ran across it. And I said, Eric, this would be a great closer. So let's pray and um, we'll close with this song. We can stand. Lord, as we observe Paul dealing with the church of Ephesus and Um, You tell us clearly that God cannot serve money and you. And wherever our heart is, that's where our treasure will be. If we're in love with you, then we'll be talking with you and having fellowship with you. And as we go through your word this morning, Lord, and just look at the different aspects and characteristics of prayer, I help it be a part of our life like it was with Daniel, that we have a routine of walking and talking with you. And uh, we thank you for the unspeakable privilege of being able to come boldly, as your word tells us, before the throne of grace, knowing it's because of grace that we can have this boldness. And there is no condemnation for those of us that are in you. This is wonderful, Lord, and it brings us to the point that we want to bless you and thank you with gratitude. And in this case, Lord, through song. In Jesus' name, amen.